let me welcome you this morning. We are so glad to have you on this Easter Sunday morning, and we trust that you're celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive, that you've been singing along the songs, and that uh, you're ready for God to speak to your heart. This is going to be a great day. It's going to be a, a glorious day. And I want to thank you for joining us for what will probably be the most unusual Easter Sunday that you'll have for the rest of your life. I don't remember in my 62 years any Sunday on Easter that was ever particularly like this Sunday, but God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and God makes no mistakes. Can I just take a moment and ask you, if you're watching us, that you would take a minute and in the comments section, tell us where you're watching from, what city, what state you're watching from. We'd love to be able to have that connection with you to know that you're here with us today. May I also ask that through the course of this day, maybe at some point you would stop and you would share this message. After we finish today, share this message so that others will be able to hear it. Here is a way for you to be a witness, for you to be able to share the gospel with your family and your friends over social media. And you can do that simply by sharing it there on Facebook or you can go to our website, lmbc.org, uh, click on the live tab, and choose today's service and then copy the web address and then put it into your social media and people will be able to find us today. We want as many people today to hear the message of the hope that Jesus gives us. I know most of you are looking forward to the day that this is all over, that the stay-at-home order is lifted and we can all be back together again. I'm looking forward to getting back to a more normal rhythm of life and I'm sure you feel exactly as I do. But I want to take uh, just a moment here today and just tell you that it'll t probably take us a little bit of time to, to regain our confidence uh, when we come back to a crowd or we want to shake hands with someone or we want to give them a hug, and that'll be okay. But we really do look forward to the day that we get back together and we're able to worship the Lord together again. Today I want to turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And I want to read to you a rather lengthy section of Scripture, but I want you to follow along with me this particular resurrection story about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us, 
went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. As I know you're fully aware, there's a lot of people today that are filled with anxiety and they're afraid right now. They're locked down in their houses and they're uncertain what tomorrow holds for them. They don't know when it's going to be safe again to be able to venture outside and to be able to interact with people. They aren't sure how they're going to pay their bills. They're worried about having a job tomorrow or next week. Some of them have businesses and they're concerned whether their businesses are going to survive this shutdown. The fact is that I've had numerous conversations with people over the past few weeks that have expressed various degrees of emotional stress about the future. So I want you to know something. You're not alone. You're not alone. We're in this together. And we all understand what you're feeling because all of us have some measure of this feeling. But what I want to do today is I want to turn your attention away from those things for just a few minutes, and I want to turn your attention to the one who can bring us hope when we feel hopeless in this world. That hopelessness that is creeping up on us and is starting to choke the very life out of us, we want to turn our attention to that one who can give us the hope we need to survive during these days. There were two of Jesus' disciples. These weren't two of the original 12, but these were two people who had followed Jesus in the course of his ministry, and they were traveling home from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. We find that story here in Luke chapter 24, and it's perhaps one of the most beloved of all of the resurrection accounts. It's only Luke that records for us the details about what happened with these two men on that first Easter Sunday. As we join these two men on this Emmaus, on this road to Emmaus, they're having a vigorous and a vocal discussion with one another about what had happened in Jerusalem that Passover season. The men were dejected. They were discouraged. They were defeated. They were depressed. They made their way along that dusty road, and there was a sense of hopelessness that enveloped them. They had hoped that Jesus would be the answer to a free Israel. They had hoped he would change their lives by overthrowing the Roman oppression. They had hoped he would make a difference in their world that would show he was the long-awaited Messiah. But now he was dead. 
or so they thought. We've probably felt some of that same kind of hopelessness in our own lives. Maybe you're experiencing some of that even today. We hoped that our child would live. We hoped our marriage would survive. We hoped our loved one would be healed. We hoped the headaches would go away. The stress would fade. The load would be lifted. We hoped the business would do well or that the new boss would be better than the previous man or woman. We hoped that we'd have a bigger retirement. We wouldn't have to work a part-time job in these later years of life. We hoped, we hoped that our kids would be more settled and we could relax and we could enjoy life. We hoped that these years would be the good years, the years we dreamed of enjoying. We had hoped that this pandemic would quickly pass and life would return to normal. We hoped there would be a cure for the illness and a way not to pass it along to others. We had hoped for the economy to be up and running by now and for us to be back to work making a living. You know, the fact of the matter is that when you remove hope from our lives, our very life itself begins to fade away and the struggle that we have because we're hopeless becomes so real as we seek for reasons to go on living. Did you know at times like this that suicides increase? I was reading this past week in Scientific Magazine an article about this very matter and how it affects people emotionally and psychologically, these kinds of events that we're experiencing today. And they related a number of stories of people that they attribute the loss of their lives to this matter of a hopelessness that they feel. Let me read one to you. A 50-year-old father of three, it says, may be the first suicide victim linked to the coronavirus epidemic. Panic is suspected of precipitating his death. Historically, disease pandemics have been associated with grave psychological consequences. This should not come as a surprise. In its simple definition, pandemic describes the spread of a disease across a large region. But words such as pandemic, plague, and now coronavirus are not experienced in a simple way. They come riddled with fear, anxiety, grief, and chaos. It goes on. Panic can demoralize us. It can paralyze us with paranoia and fear. And these emotions, now listen, these emotions in turn lead to hopelessness and desperation. Someone called me this week and told me the story of someone that had recently committed suicide most likely because of feeling that sense of hopelessness as they were surrounded and it began to choke the very life out of them. The fact is, hope is an essential of life and all of us must have it in order to be able to live this life. There's an Air Force instructor that developed what he called the, the rule of threes and this is what it said. He said, you can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, three minutes without air, but not three seconds without hope. Now think about that. 
That's a military expert explaining to airmen that they cannot survive without hope. And if you're a little bit of a history buff, you probably know that when soldiers lose hope, they lose battles. If an army believes that the, the, the other army is more powerful and that they can't stop them, they become hopeless. If they discover that their leader's been killed, their commander, their general's been killed, or maybe that he's fled away, they become hopeless. And history shows that when an army loses hope, they lose the battle. I've seen churches lose hope. I've seen preachers lose hope. I've seen Christian businessmen and women who lost hope. And when people lose hope, they lose the will to go on. They're, they lose their faith. They lose their trust. They lose their confidence. And suddenly there's nothing left but the shell of a Christian. And seemingly, there is no life inside that shell. We have to understand that hope is absolutely essential to life. We cannot live without hope. All of us needs hope. Even the Bible indicates that. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You understand what he's saying? When hope isn't realized, it makes the heart sick. We become disappointed, we become discouraged, we become despondent, we get depressed. David put it this way, Psalm 33, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Or in Psalm 71, verse 5, he said, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. You can even move to the New Testament and you can find this same principle you find the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Listen to what he says. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Now listen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, we await it eagerly with patient endurance. Do you hear what he says? When hope is present, we can wait patiently with endurance. But when hope is gone, those things are gone as well. As a child of God, as a man or a woman who's watching this service today, I want you to know that there is hope today. And that hope arose on that very first Easter Sunday morning. Listen to these two men as they're conversing with one another and Jesus joins them in the conversation as they're traveling on this road to Emmaus. Listen to their words in verse 21. It says, we had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, on, on this day, these two men had lost hope and they were trudging back to their dull, lifeless, routine lives. They were just a shell of the men they had been before the crucifixion. And the reason is because they had lost any sense of hope. But here's the good news. The good news for them, the good news for us. Jesus wanted to open the door of hope again to them. Jesus wanted to come and join them in this journey, and he wanted to breathe hope back into their lives, and that's exactly what Jesus wants to do for us as well. Think about this for a moment. 
Something I find interesting about this story in Luke chapter 24 is that these men walking on this road to Emmaus didn't recognize who it was who had joined them and was conversing with them. They didn't realize it was Jesus. Even more interesting to me is that Jesus didn't just say to them, hey guys, it's me, I'm alive, I'm right here. Put your fingers in the nail prints. Put your hand in my side. Do you find that strange? Just a week later, Jesus will basically give those very words to doubting Thomas. In other words, Thomas got a show-and-tell lesson. Touch these nail prints. Put your hand in my side. But on this road to Emmaus, on this day, that isn't how Jesus approached it. These two men got an hours-long dissertation. What in the world is going on? Why in the world would Jesus deal with these two men in this most beloved story of the resurrection? Why would he deal with them in this way? And I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that Jesus took the time to deal with their hopelessness so that we'd know how to deal with our hopelessness. All of us face this at times. All of us have to deal with it at times. We get discouraged. We get downhearted. We get overcome with that sense of hopelessness. Times when we've lost our jobs, when our children have gone astray, when our health is deteriorating, when people are mistreating us, when things just aren't going right. And if you want to know how to deal with those moments in your life when you have that sense of hopelessness, we turn to this very story. And because Jesus handled these two men in a very specific way, we learn how we're able to deal with our own sense of hopelessness. I believe that what Jesus did with these two men on the road to Emmaus was recorded precisely for our encouragement and hope. I believe the way Jesus deals with these men explains to us how God wants to deal with us in our hopelessness. So let's just look at it for a few moments. First of all, I want you to write down these words. He opened the scriptures. He opened the scriptures. Listen again to verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The hope that we see reborn in the lives of these two Emmaus disciples didn't come from each other. It didn't come from the disciples that were still in Jerusalem. It didn't come through their own family when they arrived home. The fact of the matter is the hope that Jesus will breathe into them came when Jesus opened their Bible to them. He opened the scriptures to them. It's unfortunate that too often Christians forget that the Bible is the tool that God gave us to encourage us in our downtimes. In fact, that's exactly what God says the scriptures will do for every one of us. Listen to it. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, hear those words? Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Do you hear what he says? Do you hear what he's telling us? 
Why were the scriptures written? He specifically tells us that we might have hope. Do you understand that the Bible that we hold in our hands can change our lives and it can breathe hope into our very being? It's a powerful, powerful tool. And the power of God is on the pages of that book that you're reading from right now. If you're not reading it, if you're not reading it, you're robbing yourself of the powerful help that God wants to give you. It's in this book, the Bible, the Scripture, that God wants to help us to become overcomers in a difficult and challenging world. There's an interesting story that comes from 1942. A B-17 crashed into the Pacific Ocean. It's a true story. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker and six other men found themselves adrift on three small rafts They had no water, and they only had four oranges amongst them. They tied their boats together, and they drifted day after day. They were tortured by the relentless sun by day and the chilling winds at night, and constantly they were stalked by sharks. It seemed impossible that they could survive. But one of the men, a man by the name of Private Johnny Bartek, was a very devoted Christian who always carried a little New Testament with him so that he could have his daily devotions. And there, floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Bartek read his Bible. Eventually, the other six men wanted to know what he was doing. And when he explained to them about his daily reading and prayer routine, they all began to participate with him. They started in the book of Matthew, and when they got to Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34, life changed for these seven men in the Pacific Ocean. These are the words they read. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And so they began to pray, and they began to ask God for those very things, the things they needed to eat and to drink And the story is that remarkable things began to happen. Miraculous things began to happen. Just when they thought they were going to starve, a bird landed on Rickenbacker's head. They grabbed that bird and they used part of it for food and they used part of it to fish. When they thought they were going to die from thirst, a cloud would come over and it would fill up their raft with water. And day after day, they were reading the Bible, they were praying, and they were claiming God's promises of provision. God, somehow, in the midst of that ocean, provided for those men food and water. They even said that on occasion, a fish would jump right into their raft. That's a a miraculous thing. And that went on for 21 days. 21 days drifting under the blazing sun in the middle of the ocean. In his book, We Thought We Heard the Angels Sing, Lieutenant James Whitaker wrote these words. I don't think there was a man of us who didn't thank God for that little khaki-covered book, that New Testament. It led us to prayer, and prayer led us to safety. You hear what he says? He was on the pages of that Bible 
of those scriptures that those men found hope, and that's where you'll find hope too. And Jesus on this day, as he's walking along with these men on the road to Emmaus, their hope has been drained out of them. And what does he do? He opens the scriptures to them. The Bible has the kind of power that can bring hope to those who are seemingly hopeless. Its words can turn our hearts to God, and when our hearts are turned toward God, we learn to trust God, and when we learn to trust God, hope is breathed into our very being. And I think it's also important to notice in this particular text of Scripture that when Jesus opened the Scriptures, he didn't just have a general Bible study with these men. He taught them specifically what the Scriptures had to say about him and about his resurrection. Listen again to verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Everything in the Bible is important. We need to learn everything it has to say. But amongst all of those things that we find in the Scripture, the most important thing we have to learn, we have to learn about Jesus, and we have to learn about what Jesus has done for us. And why would that be true? Because without Jesus, there is no hope. Without his death, his burial, and his resurrection, this life is all you have. You live, you die, you're gone. But that's not true if you know what the Scripture says. You know that the Scripture says that Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus breathes hope into every one of us because he is alive. And so the very first thing Jesus did with these men who felt hopeless on this day was to open the Scriptures to them. The second thing that Jesus did on this day is that he opened their eyes. You find that in verse 31. It says, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. He opened their eyes. Have you ever wondered why these two men didn't recognize Jesus on the road to Emmaus? I mean, were his nail-scarred hands somehow hidden in his robe so that they couldn't see him? Were they not familiar enough with the person of Christ that they wouldn't have known the tone and the sound of his voice? Or was something else going on here that's so vitally important? I'm glad that the Scripture reveals to us specifically why they didn't recognize him. Supernaturally, God had withheld the ability for them to recognize the presence of Jesus. And the reason is because he's teaching us how we can have hope. But you know, sometimes it seems to us that when we need Jesus most, his presence is hardest to recognize, isn't it? Our disillusionment, our despair, our self-pity, our disbelief, our panic, they have a tendency to blind us to the fact that he's there, whether we recognize him or not. One author has taken this story and put it into a novel form, filled in a few details, and I'm going to read you two or three paragraphs. As the setting sun welcomed in the evening and the conversation on the road came to a close, we arrived at Emmaus. 
The stranger bid us farewell and continued walking. I had the sense he was hoping we would invite him in, but he didn't seem to want to force his presence on us. However, my friend and I were thoroughly enjoying this stranger's uncanny insight into the scriptures. And in our culture, hospitality is assumed, especially at night. Traveling in the dark is difficult and dangerous. So I decided to invite the stranger to have dinner and spend the night with us. Besides, we wanted to hear more of what he had to say. The stranger readily accepted our invitation. So we entered my house, made some small talk, and then reclined for the meal as was our custom. To my amazement, our guest took the place of the host. This was the first sign that something was not as it should be. In a Jewish home, it was always the head of the house, the father, the grandfather, the eldest brother that took the place of the host and was responsible to pray over the food, bless the table, and break the bread. The stranger preempted this established order. He continues, I was completely unprepared for this. As much as I respected this stranger's Bible knowledge, I felt like this was disrespectful. This man was not honoring my authority as the head of my home. The fact that he acted as the host shows that he thought he was the most important person present. Yeah, I guess so. He continues, now I readily admit that his knowledge of the word was astounding, but this did not give him the right to usurp me in my own home. I just had to say something. After biting my tongue the entire trip home, I couldn't remain silent any longer. Every man has his limits, and I had finally reached mine. As I was about to speak, the stranger took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to us. At that very second, it hit me like a piece of wood from the carpenter's shop. This is no mere man. This is Jesus. My neighbor and I had been walking and talking for the last few hours with Jesus. God had opened our eyes. We were beside ourselves. We were embarrassed. We were humbled. We were awed. God sovereignly kept us from recognizing Jesus until he was ready to reveal him to us. And can I tell you that God not only opens the scriptures, but God opens our eyes to realize that we are not alone, that God is with us, that he walks along with us to encourage us and to help us. The fact is, even when our world gets turned upside down and the road we're traveling is difficult, we never walk the path alone because the living Christ walks with us even if we don't fully recognize his presence. Here's a New Testament story that illustrates this principle that I'm trying to bring to your attention, and it comes from the life of the Apostle Paul. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And Paul is in Rome. He's under arrest, and he's going to die the death of a martyr. The custom of Roman law was to allow an accused prisoner to have witnesses speak on his behalf during the preliminary hearings. But Paul says there was no one that stood with him, and there was no one who was willing to speak on his behalf. 
That means all of the companions who had been coming and going and visiting him. That means none of the Christians that were in the city of Rome, none of them wanted to identify themselves with Paul. Stop and think about that for a moment. Can you imagine a more difficult experience or a more lonely moment for the Apostle Paul? But listen to what he writes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Now listen. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That's exactly what the opening of the eyes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus came to understand. They were not walking that road alone, that Jesus was with them because he is alive. And can I say to you today that not only must you open the scriptures, you must open your eyes. Let God open your eyes to see that you are not alone, that the Lord, in fact, is with you today. There was a Presbyterian minister by the name of Alfred Ackley. He asked a young Jewish student that he was teaching and trying to encourage to come to faith in Jesus Christ to trust the Lord. And that Jewish student responded by saying, why should I trust a dead Jew? Well, Ackley's response to that young student led to the writing of one of the most familiar and most beloved hymns, especially at this season of the year. It's entitled, He Lives. Listen to Ackley's response. He lives, I tell you. He is not dead, but lives here and now. Jesus Christ is more alive today than ever before. I can prove it by my own experience as well as the testimony of countless thousands. You hear what he says? I can prove it by my own experience. My eyes have been opened, and I see him. He is with me. And he wrote this hymn, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, He's always near. And then that chorus, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Jesus opened the scriptures and expounded them as they related to himself. Jesus opened their eyes to see that they were not alone, that Jesus was with them, that he was very much alive, and that brought hope into their very being. But there's one last thing that Jesus did. He opened the scriptures, he opened their eyes, but then he opened their mouths. Two verses that we didn't read a few minutes ago, verse 34 and 35 saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's what the other disciples were saying when these two disciples from Emmaus got back to Jerusalem. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he had known them in the breaking of bread. He opened their mouths. They'd walked those seven miles to Emmaus and now they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem to tell the word that we've seen him. He is alive. That trip to Emmaus, it was a slow and a hopeless walk. But that trip back to Jerusalem was hasty and it was hopeful. 
I can only imagine that they made it in a lot less time back to Jerusalem than they made it from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And let me ask you a question. Why are they going back? They're going back so that they can tell others about Jesus. They're going back so that they can tell others that Jesus is alive. And when they arrive, even before they can get out their story, the other disciples are telling them, we've seen him, we've seen him, he's alive, he's alive, we've seen him. They're filled with hope. Jesus is alive. And now they're all together and they're interacting with one another and sharing with one another. By the way, by the way, isn't it wonderful to go to church, to gather with believers, and to be around people who've, been, who've had an experience of being with the living Christ? Their hearts are ablaze with joy, and they love sharing what Jesus has been doing in their lives. Isn't that encouraging? Absolutely it is. And it's wonderful when people want to tell others about Jesus. Jesus opened the scriptures. Jesus opened their eyes, and then Jesus opened their mouth to tell other people about Jesus. And when you start telling other people about Jesus, you're telling them about your experience with Christ. And suddenly hope begins to rise in your own heart. Dr. Jerry Vines was the former pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida. And he used to tell a story of something that happened to him in his late teens. He said that they had a revival meeting that occurred at night. But during the day, they would go visiting. And the assistant pastor of the church asked him one day, Jerry, are you going to visit with me? And Jerry responded that, he would go, but he wasn't going to say anything. So they went to a housing project. They were invited into one of the apartments, and there in the apartment were two teenage brothers, 15 and 13 years old. He said they sat down, and the assistant pastor looked at him and nodded his head as if to say, Jerry, okay, let's begin. And Jerry said he nodded back and said, no way. No way am I going to do that. I'm afraid was what in essence he was saying. Listen to what he writes. After a while, I realized that I didn't say something. If I didn't say something, we would never get out of there. It was a disaster. I just used some scripture, scriptures I had heard our preacher talk about that could lead somebody to Christ. I shared them in a stumbling, haltering way. I felt totally defeated about it all. In a little while, I said to them, now listen to this question. You all wouldn't want to be saved, would you? <laughs> Maybe not the best way to ask the question. He continues, To my utter astonishment, both of them said they would. They got down on their knees, and those two teenage boys invited Jesus into their hearts. The next Sunday night, our assistant pastor was baptizing. I saw those two boys come to the baptistry and watched as they went down into that watery grave of baptism, death to an old way of life, resurrected to a new way of life. Now listen to what he says. And a holy stirring started building in my soul. I felt the presence of Jesus like I had never felt him in my entire life. Isn't that sort of what these two men on the road to Emmaus were saying that day? Didn't they say, didn't our hearts burn within us? You understand that when you begin to tell others about Jesus Christ, you begin to realize that God wants to use you and that God is using you. Whether the person responds 
positively or negatively, you realize that God is using you and hope begins to arise deep within you, that your life matters, that you can bring others the message of the gospel of Jesus. There's just something about telling others about Jesus that lifts your own soul out of the pit of despondency and depression. Too often we spend too much of our time thinking about ourselves rather than thinking about how can I share Jesus with somebody else. And when we do, it gives us hope that God is still at work and that God is still changing lives. You see, that first Easter Sunday, Jesus opened the scriptures and they found hope. Jesus opened their eyes and they found hope. Jesus opened their mouths and they found hope. Today, Jesus wants to come and bring hope to you on this Easter Sunday morning. But each of you, each of you has to receive Christ for yourself. Each of you has to invite Christ to be your Savior. Each of you has to call on Jesus for yourself. And if you would do that today, Jesus would come to live his life in you. He'd give you a new destiny. He'd give you a new direction in this life. He would give to you eternal life. He would give to you a peace and a forgiveness that you can have no other way. He would breathe hope into your, into your life today. But you have to personally receive Christ for yourself.